title for us this morning is An Apostle's Letter to Everyday Christians. An Apostle's Letter to Everyday Christians. If you're here this morning, then one of two things is true. Either you are a Christian and you've come together here in the Lord's house with the Lord's people to worship the Lord, or you're here because you're curious about Christ and Christianity. In either case, I can tell you without reservation and without hesitation that the New Testament is the authority for both of us. Whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ, the New Testament is the authority on Christ and Christianity. You want to grow in your relationship to Jesus Christ? You go to the New Testament. You want to learn about Jesus This Jesus you've heard of, you go to the New Testament. You want to begin to gain a greater understanding of doctrine and theology? You go to the New Testament. You want to compare and contrast what you've heard from the world with what Christianity says it is all about? Then you go where? To the New Testament. In either case, the New Testament, friends, is indispensable We cannot do without our New Testament. But fortunately, we don't have to do without our New Testament. But I'm convicted by what Samuel Clemens once said. You might know him by his author name, which is Mark Twain. The person who cannot read is not at any disadvantage over those who can read but don't. You have in your access, readily available, the New Testament, which you should be reading every single day. I shouldn't have to do it for you. Your parents or your grandparents shouldn't have to do do it for you. God in his providence has inspired the authors who, as a result, penned an inspired text without errors, and then he protected it throughout history so that you and I in Miami in 2024 could read the New Testament without equivocation and without doubt, knowing that what we're reading in this New Testament is indeed God's word to the church. These group of, this group of men who penned this book that we call the New Testament We call apostles. We're going to talk about apostleship soon. But for now, suffice it to say that we don't stray outside what the apostles and prophets have said. In fact, the Bible says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, and the chief cornerstone of that foundation is Christ himself. We don't play outside of those boundaries like some denominations do, like some belief systems do. We only stay within the confines of the Bible as the Bible is that which has been provided to us by God through the apostles and the prophets. The people who witnessed Jesus Christ the people who witnessed Jesus Christ after his resurrection, and those who were called and commissioned. What are those words? Called and commissioned. They are the ones that Christ has given authority over the church. 
Not just anyone, but by the way, this is why people love to give themselves titles. Because they want to have today the same authority that Christ gave the prophets and the apostles then. But we don't have prophets and apostles anymore. That office has come to a close. And the reason that office has come to a close is because the New Testament has come to a close. And having given you this introduction this morning, we're going to focus our learning in the New Testament over the next upcoming months in the book of 1 Peter. This morning, we're looking at three points, the author, the audience, and the address. The author, the audience, and the address. So let's begin with our first point this morning, the author. The author. As is the case with most of the New Testament documents, we have a clear indication of who the author is early in this epistle. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter, by the way. It says this, you can read with your eyes as I read aloud, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now the real question, of course, is this, who was Peter? Who was Peter? Well, it's a great question, and I think there are a few things that help indicate to us who this Peter was. First of all, and most obviously, he identifies himself as Peter. He identifies himself as Peter. But that's not all. As we read through the book of 1 Peter, the five chapters of 1 Peter, we find that there are a number of personal indicators revealed to us about this person called Peter. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he refers to himself as a fellow elder. And that is to say, he's someone of report in the church. He's a spokesman. He's a leader. And furthermore, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, it also says that this person, Peter, says, I was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And that is to say, church, this Peter is someone who was present during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He witnessed it, the death of Jesus on the behalf of sinners. The word witness is the Greek word martyrios, which is the word we get martyr from. He witnessed it. If we take this at face value and a handful of other indicators that we find in the five chapters of 1 Peter, and there's no reason why we shouldn't doubt any of this information, then the Peter who is introducing himself in chapter 1, verse 1, is none other than the Peter who was one of the twelve, along with Andrew and James and John and Matthew and the others. We know him as Peter, but interestingly enough, his name is not Peter. His name is Simon. But the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all indicate to us that Simon had his name changed by Jesus. Jesus gave Simon the nickname Peter, which means stone. Here's the point. Say amen if you're listening. After all these years, he's referring to himself, not as Simon, but as Peter. I bring this to your attention, church, because I want you to understand something. What Jesus calls you matters more than what anyone else calls you. 
stupid, ugly, inept, incapable, prideful, arrogant, rude. There are a lot of names that get sent your direction, and none of them matter in view of what Jesus calls you. That's the only thing that really matters. What does Jesus call you? Does Jesus call you a son or a daughter? Does Jesus call you a child of God? Or does Jesus call you a foreigner? Or does Jesus call you someone that he doesn't know? The only real distinction between those two groups of people is faith. By faith in him, we are adopted into the family of God. So powerful was the moment and the influence that Jesus had on Peter that he stopped calling himself Simon and kept calling himself Peter. Well, secondly, not only do we see that this Peter is the one of the 12, the one who was Simon but had his name changed by Jesus to Peter, but secondly, we see that Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not just an apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle was someone who was sent. That's what the word apostle means. It means someone who was sent. And if you are sent, then you're sent by someone who has charge over you, someone who has authority over you. This is the implication of this word. I was sent, not just by anyone, he says, but I'm an apostle. That is, I am someone who was sent by whom? Jesus Christ, not just by anyone, not just by my own inclination, but I was sent specifically by Jesus Christ. Now, church, the reason this is important is because the word apostle is not a special word. It is just a word. And the word means sent. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible calls Jesus an apostle who was sent by God. So the word sent can have just a generic meaning, which is why the qualification of this genitive is important. He's not just an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is an important distinction that we have to appreciate when it comes to the New Testament. The New Testament is not about, well, who do you follow or who do you follow? No, we all follow one Lord and one Savior. Amen? And so therefore, when Peter says, I'm an apostle, he's not just saying it with hubris or with pride, but he is saying it with confidence and identification. I'm not making up this office in which I serve. I exist in this office. I practice the authority that comes with this office because I was called and commissioned by Jesus Christ. An apostle was someone who was sent, not just by anyone, but by Jesus himself. We're not just talking about anyone who is sent. We're not just talking about any kind of messenger. We're talking about a specific group of people sent by our Lord himself. So who were these apostles, these called and commissioned men? Here they, you might want to write this down. This is by definition a New Testament apostle. They were men who were commissioned by Jesus to spread the gospel who were privileged enough to see Jesus after his resurrection. 
Now, if someone were to come to you and say, oh, you go to church? Yes, I go to church. And they go, oh, well, I don't know if you know this, but I'm an apostle. Then your question to them is, oh, you were commissioned by Jesus and you saw him after, your resur- after his resurrection? And you only laugh because you know that once the truth has been revealed to you, the darkness is not so attractive, is it? The reality of the matter is we have a lot of people who use a diluted definition of the words prophet and apostle. Sometimes people say, well, my gift is the gift of prophecy. And what they mean is they have the gift of reading God's word and preaching it. But that is a very diluted definition of the word prophet or prophecy. By definition, the word prophet is someone who receives direct revelation to God from God, which has never been revealed before, and preaches it in such a way that it is guaranteed and verified. If it is not guaranteed and verified, then they are a false prophet. But see, we don't need prophets anymore. The word of God has been concluded. This is why in the earlier portions of the New Testament, we read about prophets and apostles. But then in the later portions of the New Testament, we don't read about them anymore. Why is that? Because they died out. There's no longer a need for them. God's word, his authoritative, inspired, inerrant word has been completed for us. You want to know what God has to say to you? Say amen. Then read the Bible. It's that simple. You don't need someone to come in and say, God told me to tell you. What you need to do is read your book. Read your Bible. So when the apostle Peter says, hey, I'm one of the 12. I was commissioned by Jesus. I saw him after his resurrection. He is saying, you've got to listen to me unlike you listen to anyone else. Not because I'm more special than you, but because I've been commissioned to a special office and responsibility. Friends, nothing in this life is more important than knowing who you are, and who you belong to. That's what Peter's saying. I know who I am, and I know who I belong to. Here's a question for you this morning. Do you know who you are and who you belong to? This will revolutionize your life. In fact, it has been said there are two days that are important in everyone's life, the day that they were born and the day that they learn why. We are not put here to make a big deal of ourselves. We are put here to worship our God and creator and to enjoy him and to make much of him. This is the purpose of our life. And when Peter says, hey, I'm Peter, the guy whose name Jesus changed, and I'm an apostle of Jesus, he is saying, I know who I am and I know who I belong to. Well, that's the author of 1 Peter. Secondly, let's look at the audience. Read the scripture, if you would, with me again. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, 
First of all, we've looked and learned about the author, and secondly, now we're going to look and learn about the audience. This is found again in verse 1, so let's take it one step at a time. As we look at the descriptors that are provided for us in verse 1, when it comes to the audience, we learn, first of all, that they are referred to as elect exiles, elect exiles. Exiles. Now, this is a phrase that's rooted in Old Testament theology. And I want to make a reference to that and bring your attention to that fact because Peter, as a Jew who has faith in Messiah, and therefore we might call him a completed Jew, he loves the Old Testament. And as we go through 1 Peter, we're going to see that he quotes the Old Testament a lot. And so I need to bring this point to your attention As we go through 1 Peter, we're going to find a lot of references to the Old Testament. Friends, this is one reason why I alternate between an Old Testament book and a New Testament book. We don't believe that Deuteronomy, which is the book we just recently completed, is less inspired than 1 Peter. And we don't believe that 1 Peter, which is in the New Testament, is more inspired than Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament. We believe that from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22, all of God's word is equally inspired. And therefore, all of it is helpful to encourage us and give us hope, to teach us about God, about ourselves, and about the way of salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that the law has the same impact on us, as it did the Old Testament saints, but that also means that we can learn from it and appreciate God's greater scheme of work of salvation in history. I bring this all to our attention because elect exiles is an Old Testament theme that Peter is pulling from. It implies both humankind's sinful condition and God's sovereign plan of salvation in spite of our inabilities. In other words, when Peter says to these Christians, I'm going to call you the elect exiles, he is saying a couple things. One of the things that he is saying is this. If we are saved, it is because God has chosen to make us alive in Christ. Let me say that again. One of the implications of what Peter is saying here is this. If we are saved, it is because God has chosen, that's what the word elect means, God has chosen to make us alive with Christ. You see, election implies choice. I'm not talking about United States elections. This is not that kind of thing. We have become completely confused and befuddled by what elections actually mean. Election, when it comes to God, places him as the king of the universe in control of all things. He is the sovereign. Election implies choice. Election implies a plan. You see, your salvation is God's choice. It is God's plan. In fact, just as a quick reference, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the book of Acts. chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we see this idea of election unfold in very practical language. I'm going to read this small section to you, and I want you to see how this 
deep and important topic rises to the surface of Luke's conversation. Luke is the author of Acts. So we are in Acts chapter 13. Say amen when you're there. Begin reading with me in verse 44, please. This is what God's word says in Acts 13, 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear, hear what? The word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. They were reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out how? Boldly. They were not sorry for preaching the word of God. They were apostles. They had a job to do. They were going to do it. And this is what they said. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. That is because they're Jews and Jesus was sent to Israel. He wasn't sent to Japan, right? This is not hard to understand. Salvation started in Israel and spread to the world. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy for eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. From the prophet Isaiah. Verse 48, and when the non-Jews heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying God, or glorifying, excuse me, the word of the Lord, get this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. You see what, you see what Luke just said? The people who got saved had an appointment with God. The people who got saved had an appointment with God. Friends, this is what is called election. So you, less didn't get saved? No, no, it wasn't less. You mean, you mean somebody else didn't slip in? No, because God has a plan. As many as were appointed believed. Not more, not less. But as many as God had an appointment with. One author writes this, and I quote, No believer should ever feel threatened by the doctrine of election because it is always presented in Scripture as the ground of our comfort. In other words, friends, if God has chosen to do a work in your life, then he will finish that work in your life. If God has started a work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ so that you don't have to ever say, well, well, if I chose God, well, then what if I decide to unchoose God one day? You know, that's the new thing now in theology. We call it deconstruction. This is what's happening in so many of our mainline Protestant denominations, in our high school campuses, in our college campuses. We raise our kids. We teach them to color Noah for 15, 16 years. And then when they go to college, they're inundated with pagan, godless, anti-Christian ideas. And they go, coloring Noah is not going to save me now. 
And so they start to what they call deconstruct. I'm not sure I believe about the flood anymore, Mom. I don't know. My biology teacher was saying that life spontaneously took place about 30 million years ago. And he's got a PhD, so I I think he's probably smarter than your pastor, Mom. We don't raise them up in the admonition and instruction of the Lord, and then we are shocked when the world eats them alive after we send them out unprepared and ill-informed. And then we have what is called deconstruction. They go, I once was a Christian, but I'm moving away from that. This is founded in the French philosopher Jacques Derrida's philosophy of deconstructionism. Nothing comes good out of France or Germany, by the way. Everything is deconstructed so that words have no meaning except that meaning that you ascribe to them. And if that's the situation, then what has any meaning at all? And what means something for you means something different for me. But the scriptures don't allow us to negotiate with truth like this. The scripture says God created the heavens and the earth, and he said it's good. No, it's not a scientific textbook. No, we don't read words like mitochondrion or Adam. But we don't need, that's A-T, not Adam, Adam, but Adam's. But the issue for us, friends, is this. Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we believe that the heavens were made by the word of the Lord. I got news for you. When the scientists get to the peak of the Mount of Knowledge, when they get there, there's a bunch of theologians sitting there around the campfire. We've been there the whole time. Because we believed in intelligent creation. We believe that every painting has a painter and every watch is the result of a watchmaker. We don't believe that the amazing intricacies of your eye and brain and nervous system is an accident caused by lightning and algae. But it is sold and packaged in such a way that you are mocked and ridiculed. And if your faith is not intact, if your faith is not real, you will deconstruct. Have you heard this latest guy for the WEF that's going around talking about your rights? Human rights are imaginary, he says. Human rights are imaginary. Jellyfish don't have rights. Parrots don't have rights. Your human rights are as imaginary, he says, and I quote, as your belief in the fantasy of God or heaven. It's nice to think about, but it is not real. They hate you. They think you're stupid. They want to own you and put all of your money in one central bank so that they'll allow what you can spend money or disallow what you can't spend money on because they want to believe that they have the authority and control over a bunch of meaningless amoebas that are you. That's what Darwinism has taught them. So with Charles Darwin in one hand and Marx in the other, they say, you know what we got to do? Is teach this proletariat who the real boss is. 
And all of their fantasy of God, Bible, or Jesus has to be crushed. Now, my question for you is, is that what we're getting from Peter? When you hear from Peter, you know it doesn't matter where you are. We're going to get to this momentarily. It doesn't matter where you are. I want you to hear something. And everyone says, yes, Apostle Peter, speak. He says, I want you to know that God has chosen you. He is not saying that to make us wrestle, although election is a challenging doctrine. He is not saying that to make our minds go into knots, although it is a challenging theology to think about. He is telling us to give us hope and confidence about our future. What God has started, he will finish. And do not listen to the WEF or the PhDs on any college campus. Listen to the word of God. This is what Paul means when he says in Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You see what Paul is saying? We just take elect and we'll just put chosen in there. Who will bring a charge against God's chosen? It is God who justifies. This is Paul's way of saying, I don't really like the doctrine of election. And Paul goes, what what difference does it matter to you? You don't justify. God justifies. And if it's God's justification, who's in charge of it? God is. To the extent that we believe wholeheartedly that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? We preach the word. Whoever believes will be saved, because that's the word. And then we learn later that Luke says, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord had an appointment with Jesus. Oh, man, this is a lot to wrap your brain around, but that's okay. It's okay to come into talk contact with truth and wrestle. What's not okay is to come into contact with truth and then redefine. We're not allowed to do that. We must deal with it in the truth and in the light of truth. He calls them not only elect, but elect exiles, which brings us to the next idea, which is found in this word dispersion. Elect exiles, the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, this idea of dispersion couples tightly with this idea of exiles, and this brings us back again to the idea in the Old Testament that is sometimes due to war, sometimes due to God's hand of judgment or discipline on his people, when he would scatter them among the nations and push them out of their own territory. When the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, the word that was used to refer to this group of people spread out in the Greek is diaspora, the word we get dispersion from. And we see this played out in some verses. For example, Psalm 147, verse 2. In Psalm 147, verse 2, it says, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. Of Israel. Do you hear that? The outcasts of Israel. Look at Jeremiah 31. Listen to this. In Jeremiah 31, verses 10 and 11, it says, 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say to them, quote, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him like a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him. That means God paid for his people. We can't afford it. We don't pay for it. We don't come to church. Uh, the lady sang today, I'm at the foot of the cross with all of my unworthiness. The arrogance that we approach Christianity with sometimes when we go, God is so blessed to have me. Of course I'm a Christian because I chose. No, you chose because God chose you. It's him that has justification, not you. You have nothing but sin to offer God. And it says here, I'm going to bring my people back, and we look forward to the time when God fulfills his plans for Israel. We don't know how that's going to happen, but we believe it's going to happen. I will bring my people back. I will ransom and redeem them. That is to say, no different in this text as it's referring to Israel as it is for us. There is no different price for a Jew or a Gentile when it comes to salvation. The price is the blood of Jesus. Metaphorically now, Paul, sorry, Peter is pulling these Old Testament analogies of election and dispersion, and he's going, just like that, guys, that's us now. That's us now. We are spread around the world, but we are chosen by God, and we will see the fulfillment of our redemption. God finishes what he starts. Third, I want you to note this as we're talking about this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he says, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what I want you to note here, this third point under our second heading, is that these are real people in real places. These are real people in real places. I'm going to say this again. These are real people in real places. Why, you might ask, is this a big deal? <laughs> it's a big deal, you see, because Christianity is not a fantasy. Christianity is not made-up names and made-up places. This is not Mordor, and this is not Narnia. We love Tolkien, and we love Lewis. We love George MacDonald's fantasies. We, we love that kind of novel and fiction. We love that, but this is not that. It is important, friends, that you understand these are real, historical, historically verified places, cities, names, etc. Peter is not talking to imaginary people. Peter is a real person talking to real people who lived in real places. This is important for us to realize 
and appreciate for this reason. Christianity wasn't created by men hiding in caves, perverting an already existing religious system, which would be Judaism and Christianity, as they write a new book, which was to be the Quran, 700 years after Christ. Christianity is also nothing like another religion. That is a religion created by a man who supposedly received tablets for which there is zero evidence from an unnamed angel named Moroni for which there is zero evidence in a sort of hieroglyphic language that has never been verified about a particular Native American tribe that has also never been verified. That's Mormonism. You'll never hear anything about the Nephi Indians in history. And you'll never hear anything other than Judaism and Christianity in the Quran as Muhammad, the so-called prophet, perverted it for his own gain and his own popularity. I've read both these books. They pale in comparison to the word of God. They don't even hold a candle to the truth. And what is outstanding to most people is the amount of borrowing Muhammad did for Islam. If you read the Quran, you'll be amazed at how much Jesus is mentioned, Isaiah is mentioned, Mary is mentioned constantly because all he did was take what was convenient to him and pervert it and change it for his own means. The reason I bring this to your attention, friends, is this. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are all real places with real people. In fact, I have a map here to give you an example of what it is. You'll see the Black Sea to the north. You'll see the Mediterranean Sea to the south. That is what we call currently Turkey. It is an actual historical area, and these general areas are in fact even ordered, and we have compared this to the route that Caesar took. When you, they went and visited this area, Peter mentions it according to the postal route. They went from city to city to city, not just in a zigzag manner, but in an actual progress. This is Peter saying, I'm writing to real people in real cities. This is important. Christianity is not a made-up religion. Jesus is not a made-up savior. There is historically verifiable documents, events, and an extremely large group of people who call, him, call themselves by his name to prove the, his existence and his work. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Christianity happened in time and space. And it doesn't matter if people don't believe. It doesn't matter if they find it funny, worthy of mockery. None of that is relevant. No one can dispute this fact. 
a group of men who were hiding after the death of their leader suddenly became willing to be crucified, beheaded, and boiled. What changed them? The resurrection. Their Savior died, and they were terrified, hiding like a group of 12-year-old girls. And then suddenly they came out like lions, ready to be put to death for this truth. He was dead, but now God has raised him. They don't come up with some kind of fantasy, some delusional story. They are real people writing to real churches in real cities. Again, it's tried and true, and they don't have to believe it. They can reject it, they can mock it, but they can absolutely never discredit the fact that it is historically verifiable regardless of how they feel about it. Thirdly, let's look at the address. We looked at the author, first of all, the audience, second of all, and finally, let's look at the address. The address, and by that I mean what Peter says at the conclusion of his introduction here in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it one final time. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, there's a lot for us to look at in this short declaration at the conclusion of his introduction, and so I want to take it just as a couple of points. First of all, I want to bring to your attention his theological comments. First of all, I want you to note his theological comments. He says this in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. Now, that's kind of a lot and we could spend time there, but essentially what Peter is doing is he's announcing beforehand what the themes of his letter are going to be. As we go through the five chapters of 1 Peter, these are some major headings. He's kind of saying what he's going to talk to them about and he's previewing it here in the introduction. Nevertheless, it's important for us to address them shortly here. In verse 2 he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? the fact that they are elect exiles. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, some people have said, for example, that, oh, well, the foreknowledge of God is the basis on which God does his choosing. In other words, if they are elect, it's because God looked into the future, saw who would respond to him, and therefore chose them. That is what foreknowledge means. That is not what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge is not what God knew about you. Foreknowledge is saying that God knew you. There is a big difference between saying that God knew something about you and saying that God knew you. Perhaps there is no other place in the Bible conveyed where this is conveyed more clearly than in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, 
before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is what he's talking about. Before you were made, I knew you. Now, this is something, friends, that is unique to God. This is not something unique to us. We are not saying that God's election is conditioned on our response to him, like some say. That's what they're saying. Well, God looks in the future, and he finds out who will respond to him. And then he elects them because, well, it looks like they'll respond to him, so he chooses them. Can I tell you how many of us would respond to God? None! Not one! Because the Bible says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. And I don't know when the last funeral was that you went to, but you don't see very responsive, you don't see a lot of responsiveness from the dead person, do you? Dead people are not responsive because they're dead. This is what Paul says when he says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But, he says just three verses later, God has made us alive in Christ. Who made us alive? God made us alive. He doesn't say, but because we responded to him, God made us alive. It's God's work of justification, not ours. He's he's not responding to us, we're responding to him. So when we talk about the foreknowledge of God the Father, we're not referring to something that God knows about in the future. God knows everything about the future, by the way. We're We're not arguing that point. What we're saying is that God isn't, this isn't talking about God knowing something about the future. It's God knowing you. He says in the sanctification of the Spirit. Friends, if there is no Holy Spirit, there is no Christianity. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct yet equal persons, but one God. This is our trinity. And this is what separates us from the cults. If a Jehovah's Witness were to come in here, for example, I didn't bring my New World Translation, but if they were to come in here with a New World Translation, they would have problems when we would get to certain verses in, for example, John's Gospel, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Well, they mistranslate that verse because they don't believe in the Trinity. So instead of before Abraham was, I am, it says before Abraham was, I have been. But that is the dumbest translation that could ever be done because it's not only unfaithful to the simple practices of Greek, but it says in the very next verse that when he said this, the Pharisees picked up rocks to stone him to death. Why would they do that if he was not claiming equality with God? It makes no sense. We don't believe in God the Father and a lesser son and a lesser spirit. We don't believe like T.D. Jakes has taught for years what has been traditionally called Sabellianism. We call it modalism. Sibelius was a man who did not believe in the Trinity. He believed in one God who has shown himself three ways or three modes. In the Old Testament, he's God the Father. In the New Testament, he's God the Son. And now he's God the Spirit. We don't believe in one God showing himself in three modes. We believe in three distinct persons who are simultaneously 
one God. That is what Trinity means. In fact, this is a word that was coined by St. Augustine. Triunitas, he said. So the issue for us is one of simple necessity. No spirit, no salvation. The sanctification of the spirit is the work that God the Holy Spirit does in us as we are Christians for obedience to Jesus Christ. Listen, we're called to a practical Christianity. We aren't called to this theoretical Christianity where we sit around and think and idealize and pontificate. We are called to live out our faith in the world and for the sprinkling with his blood. Listen, this is extremely suggestive language. You know, if you were to read the book of Leviticus, the covenants were established and redemption was applied by the blood of something else. And they would sprinkle the people with blood, and that was representative of their redemption and forgiveness and establishment. What Peter is saying here, metaphorically, obviously, because we have not been sprinkled with blood, but so to speak, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Every single month we come together and we celebrate Lord's Supper together, and I say this cracker represents the bread which was Jesus' body broken for us, and then when we come to the juice, we say that this is the new covenant in his blood which was shed for us. So Peter previews what he's going to go in depth over in his five chapters. And then finally, he prays for grace and for peace. Well, you know what grace is, and if you don't, you might want to write this down. Grace is God's favor on undeserving sinners. Grace is God's favor on undeserving sinners like you and me. We believe in two kinds of grace. Saving grace, which is we're saved in Jesus by his grace, but we also believe in common grace. And, and by common grace, we, we refer to those ideas that Jesus talked about. For example, you might recall this from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, God lets his sun shine on the good and the evil. His rain falls on the good and the evil. And the reality of the matter is, is we have things that we enjoy from God all the time, and people who are not Christians enjoy those things too. Why? Because God is gracious. That's why. Because God is gracious. But that doesn't mean those people are saved. In order to be saved, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That is saving grace. Now, once we're saved, we can grow in grace. We might call that maturity, Christian maturity. No one should be 10 years after becoming a Christian in the same place. We should grow. We, we should mature. We should become more intelligent about our faith. We should become more dedicated about our disciplines and so on. Peter is saying, I am hoping and praying that you will grow in grace. I love what John chapter 1 verse 14 says. It says that Jesus was full of grace. Jesus was full of grace. We need his grace for salvation, and we need his grace for our growth. Amen? 
But not only do we need his grace as we live this life, we could use some peace too, amen? So Peter also prays for peace. Now, what is peace? How do you define peace? It's the kind of thing that's hard to define, but you know it when you have it, and you know it when you don't. Physical peace is something that Peter might be praying for here. Maybe he's praying for them to have peace from persecution. Maybe he's praying for them to have health and protection by God in the world's climate at the time. Certainly, it wouldn't be wrong for us to pray for that for each other. Amen? But he's also, I believe, certainly praying for spiritual peace so that no matter what might happen in the world, your spirit is confident in God and in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter not only hopes and prays that they will have these things, but look at the end of verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be what? Multiplied. An interesting word. It means to grow in number, to increase, or to abound. I think, he's not, I think he's not saying, I hope and pray that your grace and your peace, if they're like on a five, that they get to a six. I think he's saying, I hope you're off the chart with this stuff, man. I hope you have so much grace and so much peace in your life that it's just overflowing and affecting people around you because there's so much peace and so much grace in your life. Who doesn't want that? This is why they translated the word multiplied, not added. There's a difference between addition and multiplication, right? He's not saying, I hope you don't, you go plus one. He wants you to to multiply these things in your life. He's hoping that whatever it is you might be facing, you would have not just a little bit more grace and peace, but a lot of bit of grace and peace and peace, not just to handle life, but to succeed, not just to get through Monday to Friday, but to thrive in a rich and meaningful way as a Christian. To close, let me say this. If you want to know Christ, if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, then you need to read the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we find 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, we find so much encouragement and instruction. Over the next upcoming months, we're going to be challenged. We're going to be convicted. We're going to be built up. We're going to be celebrated. It's going to be an amazing journey, and I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well. For the sake of this morning... Remember the author. It's more important what Jesus says about you than anyone else. Remember the audience. This was no fiction, and this was no fantasy. These were real Christians living in real cities. And remember the address. May God's grace and peace be multiplied in our lives.